Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. History friends, are you from New York or near New York? Or are you in a position to get to New York on the 29th of June? If so, then rejoice, because you could be going to the Intelligent Speech Conference. The Intelligent Speech Conference is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network, but is also starring Kevin Stroud from the History of English and Mike Duncan, who pretty much needs no introduction at all. Head on over to intelligencespeechconference.com and use the code WDF to get 5% off your ticket. I won't be there, but all of my friends will. In fact, I think I'm the only person who won't be there, and it's kind of sad, but pretty much everyone else who is of import in the Agora Podcast Network is going to be live and in person to give lectures, talk at workshops, and just generally say hello. So if you're a listener, if you're a fan of these podcasts, and there's many more besides, check out the full list on that site, then make sure you go and don't miss your chance to meet those people that bring you 
all of that juicy, informative goodness. Head on over to intelligencebeachconference.com and tell them Zach sent you. If you're feeling sociable, on the other hand, and you don't want to be sociable in person, but you'd rather do it online, use the app Flick when you want to talk to history friends about the latest episode of this show. If you're not a fan of Facebook or Twitter, and I know that there are those of you who are certainly not, then Flick is your best chance to not miss out on our discussions. It is, of course, going to take a while to build up a significant amount of history friends so that we can have proper discussions, but a good few people have already joined, so why don't you join yourself? All you have to do is download the app for absolutely free and then participate in these discussions. Can't wait to see you there, and I can't wait to see this community thrive. We're making it thrive just like we're trying to make history thrive, and the reason why we're able to do that is because you guys support us so darn well. Whether you're listening, sharing news of this show, or supporting us on Patreon, I really, really appreciate it. And it's because you're doing this that I'm able to take on other significant projects. In case you weren't aware, we don't always release this amount of content all the time. The Versailles Anniversary Project has been a significant challenge for my time management skills, but once it's over, we'll be returning to a more manageable schedule from September, so that I can drumroll please, although you've probably been made aware of this already if you've listened to the Q&A episode. Yes, I'll be doing a PhD in history in Trinity College Dublin. It's a four-year program, it's going to take a lot of work, but it's finally going to happen and I'm really excited. But I'm only able to do this because you guys have brought me to this stage. So, a huge thanks to you for making that happen and if you'd like to support this podcast and in the process support my ventures into the further reaches of academia, then please go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and just see if there's some kind of tier that you can join that'll help jolly me along to add the next three letters onto my name because I don't have enough already, so I decided to add three more. Alrighty guys, thanks for your patience. How about that? We managed to mention Flick, the Intelligence Speech Conference, Patreon and my PhD all in this little intro segment, which is unscripted by the way, so I'm quite proud of my organisational skills in that regard. Without any further ado, let's get rid of the rambling and start into episode 72. You're listening to Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 72. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 72 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time we wrapped up Russia by concluding on the vast distance between what the Big Three imagined was possible for that country and what was actually happening. The Russian Civil War, that impossibly complex problem which frustrated all efforts to reach some kind of decision, would continue limply onwards into 1920. But for all intents and purposes, the disconnected white factions were on the back foot from summer 1919. As the Allies made their final peace in Paris, in other words, Russia was embarking down the final phase of its path of destruction, which would end in the paranoid fantasies and evil regime 
of Mr. Stalin. In this episode, we turn to the reason why the Allies were so disinterested and distracted from dealing with Russia. Yes, they cared little for that problem because it seemed so far away, but they were also dealing with the far more relevant fish, Germany, the reason why they were all here in the first place. After more than a fortnight of waiting, the Germans were due to present their answer to the peace terms, which had been handed to them on the 7th of May. If you came into this project thinking that affairs would move quickly once these terms were handed over, then hopefully by now you've come to appreciate that the Paris Peace Conference moved in stages rather than as single, snappy decisions. There were no single, snappy decisions to be had in 1919, but that was okay, because in Allied minds, something was at least about to be made crystal clear. In the last week of May 1919, the Big Three would either be informed of the German acceptance of the Allied terms, or the Big Three would be affirming their regretful decision to prepare for war once more. However, as the incredible story goes, the Germans didn't seem to have gotten this memo, and rather than say yes or say no with war, the delegation led by Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ransau chose option C, presenting in the process a vast document to the Allies on the 29th of May, which communicated Germany's counter-proposals. This stunning document flummoxed, impressed, surprised and angered the Allies in different measures and ways, and it would soon divide them more than ever. Wouldn't you know it, we've read this document of the German counter-proposals, and we also have complete access thanks to, you guessed it, those wonderful people down at the Foreign Relations of the United States papers, all freely available online. This chapter in the long saga of the peace conference is often forgotten or underrated, since we know that on the 7th of May the peace terms were presented, and that on the 28th of June the Germans signed. However, in between that period, a great deal went down, so without any further ado, I will now take you to this forgotten moment, when the Germans were expected to roll over, but instead rolled all over the Allied expectations again and again and again. While we may have expected the Allies to sit on pins and needles as they awaited Germany's response, in reality, as we have learned, during a meeting of the Council of Four on the 21st of May, the Germans had been given until Thursday the 29th of May, in other words, an entire extra week, to give their reply. Comments made on the 21st of May have been particularly revealing and interesting for our narrative. There seemed to be a sense of resignation surrounding the idea that Germany would not sign. Wilson exclaimed that, It was perhaps a safe conclusion to draw that the Germans did not mean to sign in the present circumstances. This factor ought perhaps to enter into the question of an extension of the time, though, in such a big treaty, I think the demand for an extension not unreasonable. Lloyd George followed that comment up with an equally revealing one that it was probable that the Germans had already made up their minds. Additionally, on the 21st of May, Wilson noted that time would have to be given to examine the elaborate counter-proposals which the Germans were probably submitting. When we look at comments like these, made on the 21st of May 1919, and we compare the Allied indignation at the actual delivery of German terms only eight days later on the 29th, we could be forgiven for thinking that the Allies really should have seen the German reply coming. Rather than be flummoxed by the German defiance, it was common knowledge by the final week of May that the Germans were unlikely indeed to accept the Allied terms at face value. 
The above extracts and comments confirm that the big two at least expected this, and Clemenceau's attitude was likely similar, though based on his experiences of the negative aspects of the German character, rather than due to any sense of regret over the treaty's terms. The day of the 21st of May continued to be a day of revealing statements, almost like the day when the scales began to fall from the Allied eyes, and they realised just how much of an uphill battle they would face when coercing the Germans to sign. Clemenceau wanted to use military force to pressure them. Wilson was unsure. Lloyd George wanted to offer a compromise which might induce the Germans to sign, but Clemenceau was apoplectic at this very idea. The emergence of a kind of good cop, bad cop situation was taking shape from this point. The originally unshakable confidence which the Big Three had in their peace terms was clearly unravelling here as well. From this point onwards, the solidarity between the Big Three would be further undermined, and the chasm of opinion between the three leaders would become still greater. A common theme which had emerged at the same time was the fact that the Allies were here, awaiting the German reply. Yet, we may well ponder the question, exactly what were the Allies expecting the Germans to say, and precisely how much power did the Germans have in the course of their reply? This is an important question which is often glossed over. In actual fact, the Allies were of the view that the Germans were not in any position to make counter-proposals, as per the terms of the peace treaty. None other than Woodrow Wilson had expressed as much on the 10th of May in response to Brockdorf Ransau's additional objections to the terms, saying that the Allied and Associated Powers wish to remind the German delegation that they have formed the terms of the treaty with constant thought of the principles upon which the armistice and the negotiations for peace were proposed. We can admit no discussion of your right to insist upon the alteration of the terms of peace substantially as drafted. We can consider only such practical suggestions as the German plenipotentiaries may have to submit. As this extract shows then, neither Wilson nor his peers believed that the Germans would have the legal leg to stand on to present the Allies with counter-proposals. The Allies, in short, would not be legally obliged to listen to any counter-proposals which the Germans imagined. All they would do is consider, by that they meant simply read over, any practical suggestions which the Germans might have. The Allies were not legally obliged to do anything else, according to this message, which was expressed by Wilson three days after the Germans had been handed the treaty terms. Yet, just because they were not legally obliged did not mean, as it transpired, that the Allies did not feel morally obliged to listen. One could argue that some felt strategically obliged as well, insofar as they began to imagine that not only was forcing German compliance actually impossible, it was also undesirable, since it might ignite some kind of revolution which would topple the moderate democratic government of Weimar. This is an important issue to address from the beginning of this episode, because it helps clear up some of the understandable confusion which swirled around the often contradictory way the Allies proceeded. If, as they claimed, there was no chance for the German suggestions to be implemented or accepted, then one could ask why the Big Three awaited the German responses at all. This German reply, by all accounts, was bound to be negative, and yet the Allied leaders still awaited it with barely veiled gloom, and at the same time failed to prepare those military policies which would put the German government under pressure. These military policies, led by Marshal Foch, were indefinitely postponed from the 21st of May, once it became known that the Allied leaders were willing to wait another week. 
If they knew, or at least strongly suspected the answer would be negative though, then why not proceed with the military venture as before? One wonders whether the Allies were getting cold feet by this point, and whether they hoped the German reply might clear a path to compromise. Certainly, members of the delegations, largely the British and American ones, were vocal, at least among their colleagues, that some great wrong should not be done to the Germans, which would later be regretted. All would have agreed with this philosophy in the past, but what was interesting was that, by late May, many Allied figures were coming to see the terms of the final peace as this great wrong. Included in this number was Jan Smuts, a man who had spent a long time developing the terms of reparations, though of course, as we know, a figure would not be arrived at until well into the future. On the 22nd of May, following the news that the Germans would have another week to give their reply, Jan Smuts confessed to one of the American delegates, Tasker Howard Bliss, that I am very anxious, not only that the Germans should sign a fair and good peace treaty, but also that, for the sake of the future, they should not merely be made to sign at the point of a bayonet, so to speak. The treaty should not be made capable of moral repudiation by the German people hereafter. And yet, an important point which Smuts would never share was the prominent role which he played in making the terms of the peace less acceptable to the Germans by lobbying forcefully for the inclusion of pensions within the final reparations sum, an idea which the Germans were utterly opposed to. Perhaps this was a sense of guilt that drove Smuts on, and if so, he was far from the only figure in the British delegation, or the Allied delegations generally, to come into such feelings. The historian David Trask put it best when he wrote that The conference weltered late in May in a veritable deluge of misgivings. Indeed, within a few days of the publication of the treaty's terms, figures from the American delegation had loudly resigned, including the former head of the ill-fated adventure to Russia, William C. Bullitt, as we have seen. In the British case, too, the sense that the treaty was unfair and at odds with what the Germans had been promised in October and November 1918 caused great anxiety. These feelings were to bubble over, as we'll see, once the counter-proposals were received by the Germans and the anti-treaty party within the British delegation worked, successfully as it turned out, to get the British Prime Minister over to their side in the first few days of June. But the Germans were not the only party that had to be considered. The messy nature of the conference meant that the Italians had left and come back again without their core concerns actually having been addressed, and these issues were boiling over once again by the final week of May. Vittorio Orlando, perhaps, had begun to feel that the peace with Austria, which was of far more importance to him and to Italy than that with Germany, had been dwarfed in discussions and consideration by the German peace. The Big Three wished to treat Austria differently to the Germans, because to the British, French and Americans, Germany was the primary enemy, whereas in Rome, it was Vienna that they had rallied against for over three years and in terrible conditions. It was important for Orlando and Italian interests that Allied leaders appreciated where Italy was coming from in this regard. So it was that on the morning of the 26th of May in the Council of Fours gathering, Orlando ventured to ask, If it would not be possible to have these questions roughly settled, I think the outstanding questions could be arranged in two or three days, and then the negotiations could start. The difference of treatment to the Austrian delegation would not be well understood in Italy, where Austria had always been regarded as the principal enemy. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had dissolved, and the different states forming out of it were regarded with mixed feelings by Italy, some friendly and some otherwise. 
Austria, however, was regarded as the principal enemy. To adopt a different posture would create a very painful impression in Italy. It would be felt that the Italian contest with Austria was not taken very seriously. I agree that a very rapid decision was necessary, but I do not see why one or two questions should not be left in suspense while proposals as to the remainder of the peace treaty were handed to the Austrians. To adopt a totally different procedure would create a very bad impression in Italy without any useful result. The difficulty for Orlando was aggravated by the fact that, in early May and largely to save time, the Big Three had decided to treat Germany and the other Central Powers differently by essentially prioritising the German treaty and by separating the peace treaties from one another so as to speed up the process. This meant that, by default, not only would peace be made with Germany first, but that Austria might well be treated differently, as in more leniently, than the Germans. This was a distant possibility, but still a possibility, especially if the Big Three felt that they exercised their demons of punishment with the Germans. It would also not be an exaggeration to note that the populations in the Big Three states were less interested or angry about the Austrians than they were with the Germans. An additional point which had to be considered was that which was regularly expressed by this point, that it would be unfair to punish the newly emerged rump state of Austria for all that the Habsburg monarchy had done during the war. On top of this was the final stinging point that these policies had been agreed while the Italians had been absent in the first week of May. It didn't take Clemenceau long to underline this issue, on the basis that it wasn't the fault of the Big Three, but of Italy, essentially, that matters had taken this current course. Although this was the underlying theme of Clemenceau's response to Orlando, it was couched in some conciliatory language. Clemenceau said, I am ready to make every effort to meet Monsieur Orlando, because I have learned from experience that, when the Allies were not in agreement with Italy, the immediate result was anti-French and sometimes even pro-German demonstrations in Italy that were extraordinarily disagreeable. I want, above all things, to avoid any differences with Italy. When, however, Monsieur Orlando suggested that it had been agreed to adopt the same procedure for Austria as that for Germany, this was not the fact. Monsieur Orlando had not been present when the decision had been taken, for reasons over which my colleagues had no control. It was in Monsieur Orlando's absence that the new procedure had been agreed on. All I seek is a reasonable agreement in a reasonable way. The Austrian peace was very different from, and in many respects, much harder to arrive at than the German for the reason that the country had fallen to pieces, raising all sorts of questions of boundaries, and there were conflicts arising on the Polish front and elsewhere in the late Austro-Hungarian Empire. Indeed, this point is interesting for what it says about Allied views of Germany. We've spoken before about the high levels of hope which surrounded the days before Germany received those dire peace terms on the 7th of May. One reason for this hope was the notion that Weimar Germany in May 1919 was not the same as the Kaiserreich from September 1918. In other words, just as the Allies here proclaimed that Austria could not be treated as Austria-Hungary, since it was a different state by this point, many Germans believed that their new republic would and should be treated differently as well, because it was not the same power which had fought in the war. It was more democratic, more liberal, more willing to talk. These expectations were created in the first place because of the loud, implicit notes Wilson had made to the German negotiators in October 1918, whereby he implied several times that Germany would receive a better deal 
if she'd only rid herself of the Kaiser, or at least establish a democratic government. A further cause of German bitterness then, by the end of May, was the conclusion that this had been a lie, or, as the claim went in other conservative circles, that Germany was as badly off in her republic as she would have been had she held on to her Kaiser. Continuing with the dressing down of Italy, though, and Clemenceau maintained a firm facade. After having shamed Orlando for going AWOL and missing those important developments, Clemenceau next questioned Orlando's loyalty to the Entente and the danger which Orlando's politicking presented to the unity of this grouping. Clemenceau continued, It was necessary to have the courage to tackle and solve the most difficult questions as soon as possible. It was not at all easy to do so, and could only be done if Monsieur Orlando would take the standpoint that he must preserve the Entente with his allies. I recall that in the previous weeks, I had had a serious disagreement with Mr. Lloyd George on the question of Syria, when we had both spoken very frankly. Nevertheless, we had both concluded by saying that we would not allow our differences to upset the Entente. The same was not said in certain quarters in Italy. Hence, I maintain that these questions could not be settled in three days. Consequently, it was impossible to meet the Austrians with a complete treaty, as had been done in the case of the Germans. If Monsieur Orlando would agree, I think, a start might be made by getting discussions between the experts, which would gain time. It was very hard to settle all these extraordinarily difficult questions rapidly. President Wilson adhered to his principles as applicable to the Austrian Treaty. France and Great Britain admitted the principles, but also did not deny that they were bound by their signatures of the Treaty of 1915. If Monsieur Orlando wanted a settlement, he must discuss it with the supreme desire to maintain the Entente, and meanwhile a plan must be found to keep the Austrian delegation quiet. We should tell them that the treaty was not ready, but that it would be useful to have certain discussions with their experts. It was something of a low blow for Clemenceau to question Orlando's loyalty to the Entente in this matter. Had he had his way, Orlando would have supported the Entente and the Allied leaders resolutely, but promises had been made, and Italy was potentially on course to have no peace treaty with her major foe in the recent war. This was an unacceptable state of affairs by any criteria. Orlando thanked Clemenceau and replied with an explanation of his position. Now I should state again for the record that I have altered the perspective of this extract because I believe it reads much better from the first person and it brings these minutes more effectively to life. But the unaltered original can of course be found in the minutes. Orlando said, Once the Italian claims were settled, it would be found that Italy was as sincerely loyal to the cause of the Entente as before. I am absolutely sure that the present disquieting phenomena in Italy were due to anxiety and uncertainty. Like Monsieur Clemenceau, I myself have decided to remain always with the Entente and to run all the personal risks involved. I feel I could not be accused of adopting too uncompromising a spirit. I have always made every effort to reach an agreement, including the recent conversations, where I had discussed proposals involving very grievous renunciations by Italy. I would like to thank Clemenceau for his courageous words in favour of tackling the main problems, difficult and complex as they were. But, having regard to the excitement of public opinion, I would like to ask why this should still be further excited by questions of procedure. In the present exciting state of affairs and in view of the exasperation of Italy, if questions of procedure were added, an irritation would be caused, which would produce an effect contrary to what was desired. This was my only reason for anxiety. 
As it turned out, though, Wilson was willing to compromise. He asked Orlando if it would be possible to submit some limited terms to the Austrians, but to reserve the military and reparations questions for later on in the conference. Orlando agreed to this, apparently having gotten what he wanted. In my personal opinion, I don't believe Orlando was asking for too much. It was to be expected that the different Allied partners would have different priorities, and while it was true that Orlando had been a pain in the past, the irritation he caused the Big Three had only come due to the Italian Premier's unstable position and to the shaky approach to old agreements, which the Big Three now found embarrassing. Italy's position towards Austria could not be affirmed, Orlando claimed, until Austria had her peace deal. This was no more contentious a claim than that which Clemenceau made regarding French relations with Germany. Orlando was not morally wrong, I believe. He was instead reduced to an inconvenience. It seems as though the Big Three believed that fulminating over the Austrian treaty might delay the German one, but thankfully for Orlando, Wilson was able to arrive at a compromise that kept, hopefully, Rome happy for a little while longer. Italy was by no means the only issue up for discussion on the morning of the 26th of May. German membership in the International Labour Organization was discussed, Japanese acceptance of the communique, which would be sent to Admiral Kolchak, was confirmed, that communique we examined in the last episode, the military terms of the peace treaty were run over again, and a note came from Benesh, the Czechoslovak foreign minister, asking for an audience. Two additional points were discussed in brief, though. The Japanese requested membership on the Council of Four, something that was understandable in the circumstances. The minutes record that... Sir Maurice Heinke was instructed to draft a polite reply to the effect that Japan would be invited whenever questions particularly affecting her were under consideration. The policy of ostracising the Japanese would thus continue. Then the Big Three considered a message delivered by Marshal Foch, who was again agitating for some direction in the event that the Germans refused to sign. According to previous plans, Foch insisted that he would need to receive instructions by 4pm today, as in 4pm the 26th of May, if manoeuvres against the Germans were to be actually strategically possible. In other words, if the Allies did not believe that the Germans would sign, then now was the time to set the ball in motion for a military response. Foch was on hand to carry this out. He would have followed the previous plans effectively to the letter, and he would have been able, and ready, to invade Germany within the week, so long as the Allies gave their assent that afternoon. This was the moment of truth for the Allies, and its significance is buried in the morning of the 26th of May. If the Allies gave their assent, then Germany would be faced with a fait accompli the moment news of their refusal to sign became apparent. Furthermore, in the leaky atmosphere of Paris, it was inevitable that the Germans would find out about the preparations and serious intentions of their leader. This could have moved the Germans to sign or to modify their counterproposals, as indeed Allied threats to resume the war eventually did do the trick a month later. Instead of harnessing this major advantage at their disposal, though, we are told that the Allies hesitated. They ignored Foch's recommendations to begin preparations at once, and they instructed him only to begin preparations on the 30th of May, if necessary. The minutes record that the Big Three were all in agreement here, despite the fact that, as we know, these same individuals were inherently pessimistic about the Germans actually accepting their terms by the 29th of May. It was more likely, they believed, that a negative reply, or at the very least, contentious counterproposals would be received. Since these predictions were doing the rounds in the final days of May, one could be forgiven for asking why the Allies didn't simply go for broke and prepare for a war. 
In the final analysis, it seems that the big three were themselves hoping for a successful outcome through diplomacy, just as the Germans had been in early May. Just as it was in the German case though, the Allies were to be ultimately disappointed and utterly taken aback by the scale and thoroughness of the German counter-proposals. By this time in the conference, diplomacy had failed so often that the faulty prediction of the Big Three was no longer a significant event. Yet still, one wonders what might have been had the Big Three doubled down on the military pressure and given the Germans something serious to think about at such a crucial time. Later that day on the 26th, Italy and its concern for Austria remained at the top of the agenda. Sir Maurice Hanke explained that the treaty with Austria, which was discussed earlier in the day, would be delayed much longer than expected. The reason for this was simple. The drafting committee had informed him that thanks to the task of translating everything into Italian, the process was taking much longer than expected. Orlando piped up with news that fighting between Austria and Slovenia was becoming a serious problem. To this, Clemenceau interjected with what he presented as a final appeal to my Italian colleague. Considering the difficulties of the drafting committee in making the Austrian treaty, considering the conflicts which were emerging over Austria's borders, and considering Austrian threats to leave the conference, Clemenceau wanted Orlando to make his proposals as soon as possible, and to demonstrate within them some kind of compromise. Orlando responded to the effect that Clemenceau knew what he wanted, and that they had made this plain a month before in late April, when it had become apparent that the Treaty of London was a primary sticking point. It was undesirable, Orlando said, for the four Allied leaders to fall out over Fiume, but this seemed likely so long as no compromise could be arrived at, and so long as the Treaty of London was not recognised by Woodrow Wilson. As he understood it, Orlando would have no choice but to adhere to the Treaty of London if Italian claims on Fiume were ignored. As he said, From the Italian point of view, what I desire is some transaction which would involve an agreement, but failing that, I must claim the treaty, however undesirable. I would seek every way of conciliation. I desire ardently to get out of the difficulty with the agreement of everyone, but if not, I must demand the Treaty of London. Wilson then interjected. It was, in his mind, unfortunate that these issues had still not been ironed out. Matters had reached something of what he called a cul-de-sac, Wilson said, before meeting Orlando's tired arguments with the same tired responses of his own, that the world had moved on since 1915, that the war was far smaller then, that it was wrong for the Anglo-French to promise such things to Italy under the Treaty of London, but that this was understandable, and that Italy must recognise that things had changed that otherwise the Allies would all suffer a rupture, etc, etc, etc. Wilson also brought the League of Nations into his argument, insisting that If these principles were insisted upon, they would violate the new principles. There would then be a reaction among the small powers that would go to the very heart of the peace of the world. For all these small nations, when they saw other nations handed over, they would say, Our turn will come next. One of the reasons for which the United States people had gone to war was that they were told that the old-fashioned methods were dead. Hence, if Italy insisted on the Treaty of London, she would strike at the roots of the new system and undermine the new order. The United States would be asked under the covenant of the League of Nations to guarantee the boundaries of Italy, and they could not do so if this treaty were insisted on. There was one question which would not be susceptible of solution. 
Orlando fired back against this uncompromising stance by insisting that the Treaty of London was not as corrupting or contrary to the principles of the League of Nations as Wilson suggested, because at its heart, the Treaty of London was a compromise undertaken in a difficult area. The Italians now wanted more, Orlando said, but if the Treaty of London was adhered to, then Fiume would be let go. But it had to be one or the other, that the President insisted on violating both agreements from 1915 and 1917 was tantamount to unfair. Orlando said he could not accept a plebiscite in many of these regions because the regions were, he admitted, mostly made up of Slavs. Yet in the same breath, Orlando also insisted that there was no way to ensure a plebiscite was carried out fairly, that the regions along the Adriatic were of vital strategic importance to Italy, and that in the final case, which Orlando introduced by insisting that he did not wish to make comparisons detrimental to other peoples, Orlando noted that there was a different state of culture in Yugoslavia from Italy because there was a different state of civilization. In conclusion, to bring all these points together, Orlando said, I am ready to try and find a solution, but I cannot see one at present. My conclusion, unfortunately, therefore, was that an impasse had been reached. In these circumstances, what course was open to me? I had only this treaty to make an appeal to. I am not a Shylock, demanding my pound of flesh from the Yugoslavs. Great Britain and France had given their adhesion to this arrangement. I could not say I am satisfied with the treaty, and I regret profoundly the difficulty it had created with the United States. But as no other way could be found out, I am bound to adhere to this attitude. So Wilson, unsurprisingly, basically argued in the opposite direction, saying that the Treaty of London was not a compromise, that it was counter to the principles of the League of Nations, that plebiscites did not pose such dangers, etc., etc. Considering his awareness of these problems, Wilson certainly seemed willing to continue driving towards that cul-de-sac which he apparently loathed. Perhaps, though, it had simply become impossible to keep the lid on Allied divisions any longer. And yet, it at least seemed possible that compromise was on the horizon, when Orlando then made the point that Poland was receiving more German aliens than Italy would ever receive from the Slavs, should the Italian terms be adhered to, that is. Wilson must have been stung by this truth. We have seen in the past how motivated he was by fears that inconsistencies in his own peacemaking style could be used against him, such as in Danzig, the Rhineland and Fiume. Yet still, Orlando had found this ammunition, despite the fact that Wilson certainly thought he did a good job with Danzig. And Wilson responded by saying that he hoped Orlando would remember the difficulty of carrying out the Treaty of London, even if it were correct to. This itself was an interesting turn of phrase from the President, but Wilson added that Orlando had joined in creating a machine and method that could not be used for that purpose. Apparently blessed with boundless patience, Wilson expressed his hope that Orlando would discuss the question again and that I am not tired of trying to find some new course. Orlando responded in kind and one may have anticipated the subject to be changed but it was apparently the day to pick on Italy so Clemenceau moved in next. In a long rebuke of the Italian stance and attitude Clemenceau said What strikes me is that Monsieur Orlando never made a proposal. From the beginning of these discussions he never made, once, any definite proposal. He had made a claim to Fiume. He had applied the principle of self-determination to Fiume. But when he came to discuss Dalmatia, he had dropped the principle. There was another contradiction in his method. He claimed the Treaty of London as regards Dalmatia. 
but when it came to Fiume, he had proposed to break the Treaty of London. Yet another argument was that, as President Wilson said, the Treaty of London was not really a solution. Supposing that France and Great Britain gave Italy the Treaty of London, it would not result in peace, and consequently did not provide a solution. Hence, the only solution put forward was not a solution. Hence, I feel that it is necessary for the methods to be changed. It might be a good plan to have a committee of four people to examine every suggestion. If a conclusion was not reached, the council would be the laughing stock of the world, and a position of real danger would be reached. The only solution was one that would put the world in anarchy, and I hope that when that happened, nobody could say it was my fault. I cannot agree to a solution that was nothing at all but a continuation of war. Hence, I demand that the discussion should be continued. At bottom, I am in favour of the maintenance of the Treaty of London. What President Wilson has said about the change of mind of the peoples of the world, which had occurred during the war, was a very serious consideration. In the earlier parts of the war, people had talked about the seizure of territory, but afterwards had come to the idea of liberties of peoples and the building up of new relations. The Italians must recognise this. I am not speaking against the Italian people, but I feel it is time the Italians examined these aspects of the matter, and this was a subject to which I would call my Italian colleagues' attention. It was a serious rebuke, indeed, but the minutes only record Orlando agreeing to continue the discussions, and for both men to agree to draft proposals on the situation as soon as possible. If this seems like déjà vu, then that's because it is. Orlando had already made it perfectly clear what he wanted and what he could accept. If he could not get Fiume, he would ask for the terms of the Treaty of London. If he could not get that, he didn't know what he would do. Here, though, Clemenceau was asking Orlando to create an option C, which would be acceptable to the Big Four, and this very mission was impossible, as Clemenceau surely knew, because the Big Four possessed such widely varied aims and attitudes to the post-war order. Orlando had made valid points and stood his ground, but his country was no closer to satisfaction in these key areas, and the clock was ticking. A good indication of the sense of urgency came the next day when Wilson received a note on the 27th of May from the other members of the five-man American delegation. Wilson had probably forgotten all about Tasker Howard Bliss and Henry White by this point, and he had certainly ceased to give all that much thought to what his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, had to say. But these three men, along with House, had made it plain that they would like to gather together to discuss the imagined German response. I have no doubt, House said, that any view which you would take of the German objections to the treaty would be the view of everyone which whom you would confer. Nevertheless, House explained, should the President refuse to discuss the matter, he thought that some of the commissioners, that is, some of the members of the five-man American delegation, will be disgruntled and perhaps make trouble. Thankfully for House's nerves, Wilson declared his immediate approval of the suggestion. Wilson said that he was heartily in sympathy with the idea, Indeed, it is just what I myself had in mind. And the aforementioned Smuts also worked to make his concerns plain to the President on the 27th, saying that he feared, A terrible disillusion if the peoples come to think that we are not concluding a Wilson peace. By now, of course, the Germans were far from the only ones to see the peace treaty as distant from the original principles which a Wilsonian peace had called for. And yet, here the President was supporting that treaty, even though he had yet to read its 440 articles in full. 
The next day, on Wednesday the 28th of May, a full month before the Treaty of Versailles would be signed in that infamous scene, the unaware Allied leaders remained transfixed on the Italian situation. Lloyd George and Orlando talked during the morning meeting of the Council of Four over what islands Italy would accept. Orlando declared that he was not satisfied, and Lloyd George insisted that the transfer of sovereignty would never be accepted by the American president, taking care to also add in familiar veiled threats, like the empty statement. If there were any coldness between Italy on the one hand and France and Great Britain on the other, the position would be a very bad one. Meeting a few minutes later, minus the Italian leader, the big three found that they were in complete agreement over Italian treachery, specifically over Asia Minor, where it was reported that the Italians were still landing troops. Wilson reported that, In spite of the representations that had been made, Italy was still sending troops to Asia Minor. Lloyd George responded to this by claiming that, When the question had been discussed at the Council, I had made it quite clear that if Italy did not withdraw her troops, I would disinterest myself altogether in Italian claims in Asia Minor. Clemenceau then made a contribution to the effect that he had been informed by one of his officials that Italian behaviour was causing such a stir, thanks to Orlando's refusal to loudly approve of the Greek occupation. Lloyd George upped the ante, declaring that The Italians had occupied the zones in Asia Minor in defiance of the council. While Clemenceau noted that he had heard from one of his generals on the ground in Fiume that the city had been occupied in the name of the King of Italy and that all notices etc. were issued in his name. Other matters came under consideration in this meeting. A plenary conference for the next day on the afternoon of the 29th of May at 3pm was planned. This plenary conference would discuss the Austrian situation and all allied states, all states concerned with the future of Austria, and all states which had emerged from former Habsburg lands would be invited. This would be a long list indeed, but it would serve as a chance to present what had been decided on the Austrian treaty so far. It was kind of like a halfway home between the plenary conference session of the 6th of May, when the abstract of the German treaty was discussed, and the plenary session of the 7th of May, when that treaty was presented to Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau Unlike the German case, though, the Austrian treaty was not yet finished, but what had been finished could at least be discussed. This would hopefully please the Italians. Interestingly, it was noted in the minutes on the 28th of May that 60 technical German experts had returned to Berlin. Clemenceau confirmed this information, noting that since their work was finished, they were now free to go. That their work was finished suggested that a German response was due very soon, which must have been a relief to the Allies, since their timeline for acceptance of the peace terms expired the following day. Later that afternoon on the 28th of May, discussion about Fiume continued on, in a story which were as tired of as those who discussed it a century ago must have been. Here, at least, compromise was in the air, and the solution to the unsolvable question was arrived at. Fiume would have a government consisted of individuals from Fiume, Italy, Yugoslavia and the League of Nations. In addition, the question of some islands nearby was up for debate as well. Orlando noted that It was a comfort to me that Wilson had finally recognised Italy's spirit of renunciation, as he put it. He was no longer claiming Fiume and he declared his contentedness to see Fiume come under the commission of the League as a free port. This 
was Orlando's great concession, which was a long time coming and which he got very little for in return. In recent days, he had increased the Italian commissioners from one to two on the league administration of Fiume, but other than that, Orlando's conciliation had netted Italy very little of practical benefit. The next meeting, which was hosted an hour later, concerned the future of Belgium and Luxembourg in relation to reparations, territorial concessions, and potential future customs arrangements with France. The specific nature of this meeting need not detain us, especially as the Allies were themselves on tenterhooks by this point in anticipation of the German response. The next morning at 11am on the 29th of May 1919, the storm finally began to break. The first hint of what had been received was noted by Clemenceau in the minutes of the Council of Four, where he revealed the news that an advance instalment of the German counter-proposals to the Treaty of Peace had been received and was being translated. Lloyd George weighed in on this development, pressing the great urgency of translating and reproducing this rapidly. This could only be done if large numbers of translators were set to work, as I am informed that even this advance instalment consisted of 87 printed pages. If an advance instalment contained 87 pages, nearly half as much as the total size of the final Allied peace terms, then the Germans were evidently planning something significant. To cover their bases, Sir Maurice Hankey was instructed to place himself in immediate communication with as many of the bureaucratic heads of the different delegations as he could, with a view to getting as many people as possible employed to translate the treaty. This was the extent of the discussions surrounding the counter-proposals and their terms. It would be another few days before the Allies would be completely prepared and informed, and in a position to discuss the full weight of their contents. In the meantime, discussion of the Austrian peace terms continued, but I think I speak for all of us when I say it's high time we left that issue to the side, which the big three surely wished to do. As we'll be heavily engrossed in the process of analysing those counter-proposals that the Germans sent and the Big Three's response to them in the next few episodes. And since the German Treaty is our main event, I hope you'll forgive me for prioritising the German rather than the Austrian Treaty. For the record, much of the terms of the Austrian Treaty would be debated and agreed to at that plenary conference on the afternoon of the 29th of May. Over the 30th and 31st of May, these deliberations on the terms of Austria's treaty continued, with the Italians eventually coming around to the Big Three's point of view, as they had done for Fiume. Italy's chronic lack of leverage, which had moved Orlando to give way somewhat on Fiume, also played a role in the Austrian case. Yet it must be said that just as surely as the Italian people were left insulted and upset by the spoils which Orlando came away with, the big three in their turn were also left resentful towards Italy for having let it get this far. Had Orlando compromised on Fiume sooner, it was believed, then much of the difficulty could have been avoided. In the event, though, Orlando's warnings proved prophetic. His government would not last until the moment when the German treaty was finally in a position to be eventually signed, and soon enough, it was this German treaty that dominated Allied hearts and minds. On the morning of Friday the 30th of May, as time had by now been given to translate the German counterproposals, it had become evident that these terms were far too weighted to simply address them, as one would do with a regular document. Generally, when a paragraph summarising previous decisions is written into the minutes, this is because it was convenient for Hankey to have done so, or because at the time, discussions moved too quickly and were too winding to record coherently. It could sometimes be a mixture of the two points, 
but whatever the reason, on the morning of Friday the 30th of May, it is simply noted that After some further discussion, it was agreed to adjourn until Monday at the earliest any further consideration of the question by the Council, in order to give members an opportunity to study the question of the counter-proposals with their respective delegations. Monday would have been the 2nd of June, but the reference to the option of studying the question with their respective delegations was an important one, because on the 1st of June, Lloyd George attended a meeting of the British delegation which dramatically affected his view of the entire peace treaty and of the German counter-proposals. Following that meeting, neither Lloyd George nor indeed the meetings of the Big Three were ever the same again. I think it is high time we turned our attention to this historically underrated but incredibly important document of the German counter-proposals which were released and digested by the Allied leaders over the 29th of May to the 1st of June. Unlike the Italians, though, I'm going to consider the feelings of those that are listening to me right now and say that we've covered more than enough today for a single episode. Join me next time, then, as we examine these enormously significant counter-proposals and ask two very important questions. Did the Germans have a leg to stand on with these points? And was the draft peace treaty really such a bad deal after all? Join me for an episode on the 31st of May as we do our best to find out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.